Painters make paintings, poets make poetry, and musicians make music, but architects do not make architecture. I'm Matthew Mendrip. I'm a senior lecturer of architecture at the University of Sydney, and I am the author of the new book, The Architectural Model, Histories of the Miniature and the Prototype, The Exemplar and the Muse by MIT Press. Welcome to City Road, my name's Dallas Rogers, and yes, today we're talking to Matthew Windrup about his new book on the history of the architectural model. So over summer, I decided to have a bit of downtime from reading heavy urban theory, and so I read about the history of the Opera House, actually. Oh, cool. And Jörn Hünsen's famous architect who designed that, and he was a bit of a fan of the architectural model, yeah. and he got that from his dad, I believe, who was a shipbuilding engineer, and his dad used to make models of the ships mm -hmm. that he had designed before he built them, and so Jörn got interested in the model from his dad, and then, of course, he comes to Australia builds the opera house there's there's some tension at the end of that mm -hmm. um but he's a big fan of the model how far back does this idea of the architectural model go we might talk about the different types of models in a minute but i just want to get a sense of how big this history is it's fascinating when you actually ask that question because until about 30 years ago perhaps even less, 20, 25 years ago, most scholars did not believe that architects actually used models as either a design tool or descriptive tool before 1400. And that would be surrounding the building of the, the dome, the cupola over the Florence Duomo. Archaeologists, however, knew that and had found evidence for the use of models that were much, much older, all the way through ancient Rome, and more recently, a wonderful German scholar by the name of Ulrike Fauerbach. She discovered by looking at these small uh, stone models of columns from ancient Egypt that were assumed to be just sort of votive models, that they, she actually started to discover that they were describing the construction process of how to carve an ancient Egyptian uh, lotus form capital. And also in certain instances, they showed variations like from one side to the other. And it showed that the use of models in, as a design and descriptive tool or as a tool for construction is much, much, much older. And part of what I was hoping to do is to try to draw out this entire history of the architectural model, but even more so that it uh, all of its different uses, how we use them. So rather than just a simple, this is the object, this is what it represents, and this is who made it and when, I was really critically interested in how are the different ways that we use models? Can we create a kind of taxonomy of their uses? So let's go through that then. I've got some guides here from your book. So modeling existing structures, dreaming by the model, descriptive tools or models as descriptive tools, uh, material modeling as a medium. Are they good ways of breaking up this typology? Yeah. Uh, in the introduction, I, that was when the introduction, I kind of, ex I start to open up the entire problem of how do you take this mass of different models from everything from a souvenir 
to a, a dollhouse to a full-size prototype? How can we start Maybe to organize us, these? How, talk us through though, just a couple of those examples to start um, So, well, the first thing I had to do was to try to separate this. So the first half of the book are principally models that uh, the model maker makes for other people. And those are everything from souvenirs, dollhouses, to an architect making as a presentation tool. The second half of the book is really about those kind of models that architects make for themselves as a tool for inspiration, to study, to have a design tool. And that was sort of the first kind of way I had to make a kind of preliminary division. This has never been done. When I first, the project really began about 20 years ago when I became interested in these models that I was making as an architecture student that didn't look like a building in the normative sense. It didn't have the scale or materiality of the actual building, but I was able to project architectural ideas with them. We call them loosely as conceptual models. And architects still make them. We still ask our students to, to make them. They're, they're very useful tools for opening up our imagination to study or think about things that we may not normally have thought about, and they become great tools to guide our thoughts. So what happened was is that I, I sat down and said, okay, let's go see if anyone's written about this. And I suddenly discovered that there was no history of the architectural model that had been written. But in what it was, it was in pieces. And these pieces were in periods of time, like Italian models during the Renaissance or the medieval reliquaries, or it was in archaeological journals. But then beyond that, it was also in different languages. The majority of research that had been done, and this was really more from an art historical point of view of in which it was really a scientific, these are the objects, this is who made it when, were in French, German, and Italian. What authors in English had been writing, they had not broken through the language barrier at all. So that really got me started. And I had been following this for about 20 years. But about three years ago, I decided to put pen to paper or pixel to, <laughs> to together, pixels together. Finger the key. <laughs> Finger the key. And, and that was it after that point. Yep. So, so it's a history in terms of a timeline, but it's also a typology history yeah. and, it, and a kind of conceptual history as well. Kind exactly. of what are these models doing? Yeah, that's the fascinating thing is that it really... So the, the book covers the entire historical trajectory from ancient Egypt up to the present, um, from physical models to digital. However, it is these different ways we use them didn't emerge sequentially. They kind of happened at the same time, which really is what aggravated the problem. So each chapter really sort of takes apart a way of looking at a kind of silo of uses. And they will follow chronologically to show precedence, origins, beginnings, or at least and at, at, as far as we know them. At the, but that's the funny thing is that so much of this research is still to be done. I just had a, discu a discussion with a Canadian artist who was into his photographs, uh, full-size building prototypes, and he wrote me an email and said, you know, I, was, I found your book and I was surprised that these are much older than the 20th century. I hadn't realized that. And he said, is there an earliest photograph? And I, and I just, I had to say, I, I don't think we can say that yet 
because so few people have really been digging into this. And there could be photographs and archives mm. from when we first started using daguerreotype photographs in the 19th century that just have no one's really bothered to look at yet. What, so what I hope to do with this book more than anything was is really to bring all the current research in the different languages and by different scholars and bring it together and reflect upon it in theory and practice within its cultural environs which they emerged and were practiced. And by doing this to hopefully initiate new research that will be done to expand this field. You're listening to City Road on 2SER, 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm talking with Matthew Windrup about his new book on the architectural model. And in the next part of our discussion, we get into the different types of architectural models. Is it worthwhile to go through some of these types, modalities, kind of eras with conceptual ideas in them? Is it useful to talk about modelling existing structures and then going on to modelling as imagination? Is that a productive way to break up the book? Um, I think so. These So what's really fascinating is, is that so during the late 18th and 19th century, um, there was a revival and in interest in classical antiquity. The, you have the European Grand Tour. And architects would travel, and also young uh, gentlemen and ladies would travel to be to get. It was a kind of cultural education to be aware of the world. But architects would go, and they would collect. They would do scale drawings, and they'd make plaster casts. And these were really design tools. They were models of existing structures, but they would use them and recombine pieces as inspiration for literally assembling in their imagination and on the on, on paper new designs from them based upon the authority of classical antiquity. That, when in the early 20th century, some of this began to fade with modernism, so a lot of the past was put aside in the search for new forms and materials that could be merged with mass production that came out with European modernism. Some of these, what I wrote in a recent paper was, is that some of these, the practices of the way that they would design didn't really change, but they used other tools, other means. And some of this came about with the early 20th century interest in found objects and uh, children's building block toys. So there was another fascinating era. So early 19th century, Friedrich Froebel invents the kindergarten, um, children building block sets. Throughout the 19th century, we have the Richter building block sets, etc. The early 20th century architects around the Bauhaus, Walter Gropers, Bruno Taut, Kurt Schwitters, Hermann Finstelin, they suddenly start in around 1910 to 1920 developing building block sets and promoting them as design tools for architects to seize the impartiality of a child as inspiration for new designs. So they, they, they move. So to silo off and say, well, you got these building block sets here, limits one from understanding what these early German, these architects were doing when they were using building block sets and why at that period of time. And to try to show, yeah, and of course you have um, even 
Frank Lloyd Wright is famously known for having found inspiration and learned about architecture through his kindergarten building block sets, but that they all were, as children, trained in this and somehow went back to it. So there's a, I tried to trace these connections throughout the book in different ways. There are certain periods which I think are, have not been well looked at that I am interested in, which is also another example would be early 15th century when architectural models started getting used again was surrounding the building of the Florence Dome. Why? What happened? Why did all of a sudden there was all these architectural models? When we look at the documentation of, of the competition for the Florence Dome, the cupola, they have all the written documentation because you were paid, if you submitted a model, you were paid for that model. And, but they had to also list the profession. There were not, at this is at a time, there was no such thing as an architect yet. So you had sculptors, painters, but then you also had woodworkers. And the woodworkers were the ones who were also making the models for other competitors, such as Brunelleschi, who, famous story about how he came about with the, with the commission. So when you have, the, you have these woodworkers who can make beautifully crafted models, the architects are the ones, and the sculptors, etc. they're the ones who see themselves as the real designers. But when these woodworkers are making models, they're making these beautiful models people, that the clients are going, wow, this is gorgeous. I want that. And um, this is why Alberti, who was a friend of Brunelleschi and lived through the... I don't know if, I don't believe he was actually participating in the competition, but was aware of all the issues that came about. When he wrote his treatise on architecture at the end of the 15th century and first mentions the use of models and promotes them as a tool, he says, aha, but be, be, be careful. These, these models should be plain and simple so that they, they demonstrate the idea of the architect and not the hand of the craftsman. So you have at this period of time which there is immediately this sort of awareness of these Laniolo, these woodworkers, who are starting to move into the field of architecture and practicing in it. And the Alberti sets this standard, which is carried on for centuries afterwards, all across Europe, that models are plain and simple to show the, the, the form the design and not the hand of craftsmanship on it. So there's like a politics to the model. Oh there. gosh, yes, yeah, yeah. So it emerges right away, <laughs> and um, it's fascinating to trace some of that history because there was a famous Florentine, Baccio Daniolo, who was who Vasari talks about that was trained as a woodworker, became an architect, and he was horribly criticized by his peers. They made fun of him. And there's one famous instance in which he did a palazzo and he was using a Roman method, which was famous in Rome for making it pilasters on it, on the building, which were sort of a, they thought were applied. And they came, his peers one night came down and decorated it as if it was uh, like they do in the churches and cathedrals during festive seasons. as Because in those instances in the cathedrals, those are carved wood ornament inside the building around shrines etc and so they're trying to say this is just you're working on this building as if it was a wood model and michelangelo when he came to florence and he saw the timbre of the dome that baccio had been 
had built. And if you look up at the Florence Dome today, you'll see out of all the eight sides of the dome, only one side of the timbre is done with Baccio's design. And it's stopped because Michelangelo said it looks like a wooden cage for crickets. (laughs) (laughs) And it just never got finished. So there was a lot of hesitancy and criticism about an awareness that what you can do at a small scale is not the same as what's done at a larger scale. Mm. What do we take out of this history of architectural models into teaching and architectural practice today? Yeah, it's fascinating. So another major event that kind of got me started in this was, um, so in about 1999, I was at University of Pennsylvania, and I was I, I approached my, at that time, professor David Leatherborough and said, you know, I'm really interested in the model and I'd like to work on this with you. And he had just published an article, and I believe it was the Harvard Design Review, in which he expanded on a quote from another scholar by the name of Robin Evans, um, in which he said, it, it was sort of a kind of a reminder, he said, uh, painters make paintings Poets make poetry and musicians make music, but architects do not make architecture. They make models and drawings of it to direct something to direct that which is conceived into that which is constructed. And it seems to me that what we're the architectural model, I mean, as an architect, it's what we actually work with. We should really understand how we're using them in different ways. And and I, I grew up and went through my training of architecture through the transition from in the 90s from physical to what was believed at the time that such as Columbia went to the paperless studio that suddenly we would have a physical drawings and models were obsolete. It, it's well, Columbia's back on paper again um, at the end of it. And as much as uh, we think that there's always going to, with technology changes, there's, we've never been able to replace the sort of here-ness of the physical model, this presence, the source of inspiration that it has in front of us, the accidental discoveries that occur, and, and the way that it can help us understand physical reality. Mm. Um, and do you think that that's because architecture teaching, at least, is a very physical activity? You physically design things, you physically build things, and... You are physically in the classroom with students. You're yeah. there, you're talking about it, you're having a discussion, there's a model there, there's drawings there. Is that how it works? Um, to a degree, yeah. I mean, yeah, another book I wrote was really was about the material imagination, which was related to my interest in this, is that even when we're working in a computer, we are, and I'm drawing a cantilever, That I, the reason that I know that that cantilever is going to deflect is because I've walked on a diving board or I've played with a, as a child with a piece of wood and it bends or I've seen these things bend. And in working with physical materials, they've become a basis for our imagination, a source of inspiration, a way of thinking. And I don't deny the value of working with computers, but there is this, this step that one has in in figuring out what, how they're going to draw through the what they're going to draw versus directly engaging with materials that have can have an analogical relationship with what they're thinking about. Um, and I discussed some of this in form finding and in which the chapter five on materiality and uh, the model and how these things, the, it has actually helped play 
some of these roles in design. Well, thanks for joining us on the City Road today. It's been so good having you along. Great. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney. We've been talking about Matthew Windrup's new book on the history of the architectural model. Out now with MIT Press, all the details on our website at cityroadpod.org. My name's Dallas Rogers. See you next time. Oh, and a quick shout-out to Preston Peachy, who provided the original drum track in the middle of this episode. Thanks, Preston. <laughs>